May I welcome you all to the London School of Economics. I'm Fran Tonkis from the Cities Programme here at the LSE, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to the event co-organised by the Cities Programme together with the Olympic Park Legacy Company on the theme of the first Legacy Games, the physical and socio-economic transformation of East London. This uh, is the first event in a series of four, with others taking place in weeks to come uh, at our sister institutions at University College, Goldsmiths, and Queen Mary, uh, and further information about those forthcoming events uh, can be explored via the Legacy Now website, which I suspect many of you will already have visited. The aim of this evening and of the larger series is to make it possible for students, academics, and interested members of the public to learn more about and also to add to the debate uh, regarding the issues that are the, at the heart of legacy planning and delivery in respect of the London 2012 Games. As I've already mentioned, our title tonight deals specifically with the physical and socio-economic transformation of, the, uh, of East London. And we're particularly pleased to be hosting this debate in the Cities Programme, given our commitment to understanding the spatial development of cities in its social, economic, and political contexts. If I can just tell you a little bit about the format for tonight, uh, the speakers are being asked to stick to about 15 minutes each, which will be uh, a challenge, no doubt, for each of them. Uh, and we will then hope to maximize our time thereafter for questions and comments from the floor. The event is being recorded, and we hope to make it available via podcast for yourselves and, and for others who weren't able um, to get a seat for this evening's event. And uh, there will be a, a drinks reception after the event tonight, just outside in the foyer. It only remains for me to introduce our speakers for tonight. Uh, I will introduce one of them in absentia and the others um, present. The first speaker, contrary to the alphabetical order which you see on the screen, is Professor Ricky Burdett, who is the director of LSE's Urban Age Project and of the LSE Cities Research Centre. He has, up to this point, been the chief designer, sorry, the chief advisor on architecture and urbanism to the London 2012 Olympics, and from, I think, tonight, he is working with the Olympic Park Legacy Company in that field. Our second speaker, who is even now making his way to us from an important meeting at the GLA, is Andrew Altman, who is the recently appointed chief executive of the Olympic Park Legacy Company. Andrew will be followed by Paul Brickell. He is the executive and member for Olympics and Public Affairs for the London Borough of Newham, and is also the chief executive of Leaside Regeneration. And lastly, Roger Taylor, director of the Host Boroughs Unit, will speak. And this is a body which is leading on the development of the legacy plan for each of the, the five boroughs who will be hosting the 2012 Olympics. So let me hand over to Ricky to begin. Fran, thank you. And let me add uh, my welcome as a member of faculty of the LSE to all of you. Um, as I talk about this um, Project. I realize just looking at the third row in particular that there are at least four people who should be standing here instead of me. But um, it's an exciting thing to do. Uh, I've been involved uh, only since 2006 uh, working with a whole host of uh, people in trying to raise the game in terms of design standards because I think there's a profound belief with everyone involved in this project that unless you get the design right, 
many of the ideas of social integration, economic um, well-being and all that are uh, impossible unless one is able to, in effect, uh, resolve the conundrum that you see in this image here. I know Andy will be using this image later, so I've stolen it uh, from him and other members of the team, and perhaps others will. But the Olympics is, um, is a conundrum, because there you see it. It's a two-week event with the Paralympics that then extends. It has to be behind closed doors because of security. You've got to pay tickets to get in. Uh, the Olympic Committee is very, very... Uh, jealous about uh, who has rights of access and uh, particularly television rights. Therefore, it's conceived of as, as something which is in and of itself separated. And, of course, the game plan, and that's what this word legacy means, is to uh, move to the right-hand side, which is to try and uh, turn this project, which Andy Altman, who's now just arrived, uh, is going to tell you about in, in a moment after me, uh, to turn this project uh, into something which really connects uh, and connects different constituencies, uh, different parts of the city uh, in ways that perhaps have not been done before. So what I want to do in my 15 minutes is talk about uh, the games themselves, really, because I think uh, unless one understands what the process is in terms of the design of what happens for the uh, two weeks and the Paralympic Games to follow, it's difficult to understand in even the, I think, innovation, the considerable innovation there is in actually establishing uh, the framework for the legacy. Now, can we actually get rid of these lights up here so that we can see the slides better? Is it possible? Thanks very much. Uh, I think many of us who are involved in understanding and appreciating urban regeneration uh, know that uh, it's not easy to get things right. And uh, I, for one, am someone who's uh, become very interested, and others are here, in what the city of Barcelona did. Uh, now back in 1992, which effectively used the games, and I think I can say that uh, in a very straightforward way, used the games as an excuse uh, to change uh, the physiognomy of the city and basically restitch a separated old industrial part of the city with its waterfront. You see that on the right-hand side of that image, a beautiful city uh, which has the potential, had the potential for uh, generations to uh, connect uh, with the waterfront. And the Olympic Games, the Olympic Village, the Olympic Port became an opportunity to do that. And I think many of us uh, all still look back at that model. Now, these pictures, uh, we could be using many others, of Athens four years after the Games tells you what not to do in terms of legacy. Uh, these are venues, some of them actually quite nicely designed by good architects, uh, which uh, three, four years after the event are just locked up. No one uses them. Those are not dead dogs in front of the venue on the right. They're just Athenian dogs uh, who are having an afternoon nap. But it sort of gives you a sense of uh, what uh, is not happening there. And this is because there was a great urgency, which we all understand, particularly at the Olympic Development Authority to get the things done on time for the opening of the Games. But perhaps not enough thinking uh, was placed in Athens in terms of what was going to happen uh, to these buildings afterwards. Because I think one has to take a historical perspective here. And Andy, I'm not going to steal all your slides, just some of them, okay? <laughs> to put things in context. The issue is a very, very big one here. How do you take major events, major facilities, major structures, 
uh, some of the facilities like the basketball stadium or the main stadium are uh, as big as the Royal Festival Hall or even bigger than that. Think how large these things are. You know, buildings which are bigger, ten times bigger than perhaps this hall, which are plonked in the middle of an area which uh, uh, one doesn't know what's going to happen. Well, look at what happened in Rome, uh, in Verona, when the ancient Romans began to plan these extraordinary cities, the medieval city, a thousand years later, began to embrace it. And um, this is the challenge, clearly, for London. There's also another important social context, which other speakers will, I'm sure, uh, come to, which is that London, unlike many Western cities, and we have to remind ourselves of that, is growing. Uh, there are roughly another six or 700,000 people moving into the city in the next years. Many of them will be born from outside the UK, like I'm sure uh, many people in this room, and people who move into cities and need housing and need all the facilities for that. So London, luckily, despite even the recession over the last years, is a city which is uh, in expansion, and obviously one wants to uh, trap that uh, benefit in terms of making the city even better than it is. And uh, a few years ago, again, an important policy framing for this whole discussion, Ken Livingstone uh, reiterated the great 1943 plan of Patrick Abercrombie, which is that if London is going to grow, it's not going to go like Mexico City or Los Angeles and just sprawl everywhere. It stays within the green belt. So the decision that the city will grow, but that actually it stays within a limit, means that uh, redundant industrial land, any available land, is to be used for the purposes of regeneration. Another important element to think about before we come into the games is where people are in terms of different status in life. This is a slightly out-of-date map of the deprivation in London coming from the last census. And in the darker colors, it shows people who have lower levels of education, uh, high unemployment, etc., uh, etc. Et and the lighter colors, uh, it is the opposite end of the scale. And without making a big deal over it, it is clear, but it reinforces a point which I'm sure other speakers will pick up, is that the east end of London still has some way to go, and that is why I think this is an important and unique and, uh, opportunity. Another way of looking at it is public transport. This is usually looked at by traffic people uh, and transport people. We tend not to be here at the LSE, but what you see uh, in this map, it's just very important to just focus over there. There's the Isle of Dogs. That's the area of the Olympics over there, just at that point. In purple, you see areas which are very well served by public transport. In red is the sort of next level, and in blue is poorly served. So one of the ideas is to try and bring more red and more purple into East London so that it can benefit from actually a pretty good public space uh, transport system that we have. So uh, the games which will be described um, by me in a few minutes are sitting in this location to the east of London uh, at the western end of this massive area of redevelopment, which I remember Francine Houbin, who's here from uh, Holland, reminded me that the area over here is two Amsterdams big. You could fit two Amsterdams in the area which go from this end here of the city of London to the end of the Thames Gateway. So we're talking about a lot of land. That's not the Olympics itself, but it surrounds that area. And I think what will be important is to discuss who actually lives in the sort of four corners around this very large site over here. The site has many, um, I think, natural qualities. It also has a lot of uh, uh, important sort of human and uh, economic qualities which will be discussed. But that's how the site looked just a few years ago when you look up towards 
uh, in the northern part of the site where the major railway station linking uh, to uh, uh, the continent and then onto King's Cross will eventually, in fact, even stop at that point. The station called Stratford International, which at the moment is not obviously accessible uh, to most people. It's interesting to just look at the scale comparison of the wider Olympic site, not just the Olympics itself. It's uh, nearly twice as big as the whole of Venice. So we're talking about a big chunk of uh, city which is redeveloped. Now, some people have this in their mind, and I'm sure this is wrong, and it's an exaggeration of uh, what this part of uh, the uh, Lower Lee Valley was like. I've already stressed that some remarkable, beautiful uh, areas and great assets, both within the site and around it. But there's no doubt that some of it was marred by the presence of uh, these electricity pylons which cut through uh, the whole area. Basically, you can't live uh, in this country, luckily, close to uh, places that fry your brains out. There are other countries where it's absolutely okay, including the country I was brought up in, according to uh, the Prime Minister, Silvio Berlusconi, but I haven't seen him live there. Um, but um, what is interesting here is that a large uh, part of the early money which came in was used to put these uh, pylons on the ground and therefore liberate uh, the ground for development. And that's what this project ultimately is about, I think. Uh, the Olympic Games is, uh, I would say, and repeat that phrase I use it being, an excuse to um, create a platform for development which Andy will describe uh, how his company is actually going to be working with. So let me focus in the few minutes left on how the Games itself works and what some of the venues are like uh, and uh, how they're being conceived and how uh, the Olympic Village, which is the only residential component of this project, um, begins to set up a sort of framework of... Uh, of residential uh, patterns and also urban design, which hopefully will um, inform what happens around the new Olympic Park. On this image, what you see here is a very, very simple diagram. Uh, the space inside the Olympic Park will be filled in with all the things one needs for the Olympics. You need venues for hockey, you need venues for water polo, you need venues for basketball, uh, uh, cycling, etc., etc. But not all those venues, and this is the key point, are things that certainly in London we want to keep or need. Uh, there are a few sports that uh, London certainly requires facilities, a velodrome, there hasn't been uh, one in London uh, of the quality that uh, relates to the, sort of the standards achieved in the last Olympics. Uh, aquatic uh, swimming pools, same sort of thing. But, you know, basketball we're not that good at. So why keep an enormous basketball stadium? You know, there's a... Uh, hockey were not yet sort of world champions, so why keep that sort of facility? And so the story goes on. And therefore, what you see in these two diagrams, very simple idea, is that some of these red ones remain, and I'll describe the four main ones in a moment, but quite a lot of them actually go, and the city, whatever form of development is required in terms of housing uh, and other facilities, offices and commercial, begin to take its place. So the key investment goes in preparing the land and that's where so much of the investment uh, and the energy has gone. Um, this is the major site, and what you can see here, and if you think back at some of the pictures I showed you a second ago, uh, is very, very strong presence of water. The Thames is down at the bottom. I'm worried to point this down at the bottom because otherwise Fran will be zapped with lasers. Uh, but way down there at, at the bottom of the picture is where the Thames is, so these uh, are uh, ri rivers and canals which actually connect to this network of green spaces up in the north. 
So water is important, as is the nature which comes down through it. And what you see here, and I'm going to show you three quick uh, diagrams, uh, are what happens in the games, what happens immediately afterwards, and then what might begin to happen uh, beyond that. The important thing here is that there is a network of green spaces, a park, in fact, uh, around the central area where the water is. All this sort of pink, purple areas, front of house, back of house, um, uh, a lot of uh, trucks for outside broadcast, all the facilities for food, uh, and many of the sort of things you don't really actually see in the experience of the games themselves. They occupy a vast amount of land. Uh, and you begin to see some of the venues themselves. There's the main stadium, the aquatic center, the water polo. I'll come back to those in a moment. The most important thing is what happens between there and there. What you see, I hope, is that when the pink disappears, a lot of white remains. And the white will have been cleaned up, literally, pollution taken out, infrastructure provided, electricity, in fact, with two major uh, new generators on the site, uh, uh, water and sewers and all the things that are necessary to provide the sort of, literally, the, uh, the infrastructure, the veins of a piece of future city. So, Andy's job is what to do with the white, effectively, from 2013 on. And one of the early ideas is this. Uh, this is a plan which is a diagram uh, of the legacy master plan framework, which has been developed by Jerome Frost and others over the uh, last two years. But I think it's fair to say it's an idea. It's not the final scheme. But what it's about is, and this is very important, I'm going to go through it again. Oops, wrong way, sorry. It's going from the pink to the white and from the white to the gray. Now, if you half close your eyes and this works, it feels like a normal piece of London at best. I think that's where we want to, in a way, get to. So that's the game plan, that one might have the sort of the same rather messy, organic quality of other parts of London with the relationships of buildings to open spaces that you have uh, elsewhere. And for those of you who have seen the site, uh, at the moment the stadium is nearly built, some of the Olympic Village is actually on site and you see it in the bottom of the picture. And suddenly it feels much closer to the city of London, which you see way up over there, than perhaps those of us who are biased because we live in the west or in the north and not in the east begin to think. Now, the Games was one uh, with a consortium of architects a number uh, of years ago who came up with this, I think, incredibly uh, exciting idea of a very muscular uh, structure which informed both the possible design of the buildings themselves, representing the human body, but also the, the flow of the public spaces and the, and the parks inside it. This was an early idea and I think was very much part of the enthusiasm uh, which uh, informed the way the design has developed. Many other designers have come on board since then, and I think some of the strong ideas of this sort of dynamic urban space with a park right at the heart of it, which you see meandering all the way through uh, along the water, is very much uh, one of the strong ideas of the project. Here you see an image of what that might actually be like. I stressed before the water. What will happen here, and this is a rather old diagram, is that where there is water, people will be able to sit and enjoy uh, the, the water in ways that at the moment, uh, or certainly for uh, decades, hasn't actually been possible. So this will be a park which has a lot of contour, a lot of section, uh, and uh, I think therefore will be attractive to a whole series of different people. Um, these are some of the latest images of what actually might be left behind 
two or three years, um, in fact, right after the games, uh, in terms of the relationship between the water and its surroundings. And even the bridges have been designed to be retrofitted. Uh, this is a strange image because it doesn't look like a bridge at all. Well, that's the point. It's actually one of the key uh, areas uh, taking you from the central, uh, central part of the park towards the main stadium. And that colored stuff, that sort of candy floss bit, is actually a hard surface made out of, I think, recycled tennis shoes or uh, gym shoes, if that's still the case, which fills in uh, this hole. And it, this can take up to 30,000, 40,000 people across uh, at peak times. This, everything has to be over-designed to admit the hundreds of thousands of people are going to be milling around here at peak times. But the bridge has been very cleverly designed that you can take out all that sort of uh, infill over time and have narrower spaces, more intimate spaces, very much part of the sort of DNA that you find in other London parks or Central Park. So everything has been designed with a sort of two-stage process in mind. So this image, which is very, not very uh, exciting, gives you a sense of what many of the facilities uh, might be like uh, uh, over time. Some of them, in fact, like the fencing hall are now being, uh, are not necessary and being uh, located elsewhere, but hockey, basketball, uh, and others are all temporary buildings. So a lot of attention has gone into, this is a bad image of a very good building, uh, a lot of attention has gone into building, I think, what would be a beautiful basketball stadium, but it's so large it would remain empty, why keep it here? So it's been designed to be demountable and actually relocatable, perhaps, to uh, a future uh, Olympic venue or to the Commonwealth Games in Glasgow or elsewhere. I'm sure there's some in the room who know about this. Some of the smaller uh, facilities, uh, the team, in fact, from the ODA has been uh, responsible for bringing in younger talent. This is a group of architects called Nord who built one of the uh, electricity facilities and uh, the major power station by John McCasm, I think, is very promising. Uh, a multi-purpose uh, hall remains on the western side of the site. And I'm just going to dwell briefly before I conclude. Dwell at all, hmm? No dwelling. <laughs> right. I, I want to just show you some of the um, uh, facilities and how they've been conceived. This is the velodrome by um, the architects Michael Hopkins and Partners, which I think is, has a great simplicity and, and quality about it. And in fact, there it is actually under construction last week. Uh, one of the greatest pièces de résistance is Zaha Hadid's uh, aquatic center. Well, this building is being designed for legacy to sort of be reduced. But since, as you all know in this room, swimming is one of the great attractions, it's been designed to actually have an extra something like seven, 8,000 seats during the games themselves. But these come away so that the final building is as you see it over here. It's actually reduced in scale and is therefore working uh, for the community of a smaller scale. I return to the sort of image, rather romantic image, of a city uh, in northern Italy called Luca. Uh, to just talk about the stadium, and then I will conclude on the village. Um, the stadium itself, as you all know, it's nearly constructed, it's nearly complete, you've seen it, has been designed at the moment to actually be demountable, or re the top part, the top 55,000 seats to actually be taken away. It's still a political debate at the moment, but I think <coughs> it's interesting that there's a recognition that if you have another 80,000 stadium in this part of London, we already have Wembley Stadium in London, perhaps it's not necessary and it might become another white elephant. So it's actually designed to be smaller and be used by sort of local uh, sports um, facilities like a football club. Um, I'm going to conclude without going into too much detail about the village, but just to talk about this uh, diagram over here. 
on the top right-hand corner of the Olympic site, so close to Leighton, uh, over here, close to Stratford City, which is a major shopping center which is being built uh, nearly, uh, well, is being built very rapidly immediately to the south of the main uh, international station, which is at this point over here, is the beginnings of what I think is the, inf the, the uh, residential infrastructure of uh, the whole Olympic project. What you see is a series of urban blocks, about 12 of them. They're large perimeter blocks. They're sort of a bit like the things you find in Marleben or in uh, Berlin, for those who know that city. And they're designed, um, I think, in an interesting way, with a lot of public space uh, actually uh, around it, very well landscape, which connects to the major park over here. Now, the village has, roughly speaking, 3,000 units, of which roughly 40% are going to be affordable. And the design has been done in such a way that two elements, I think, are important in terms of the discussion about social and uh, spatial integration. The first is, is that all the housing units, all those perimeter blocks, even though some of them are actually quite tall, seven, eight, nine, ten stories high, the first three floors will be townhouses. Will be a bit like walking around any street in London where you see a front door, a railing, a small garden, uh, and what Jane Jacobs used to refer, eyes on the street. Then apartments are from there up. And each of the uh, blocks has got a mixture of affordable housing, social housing, and housing for rent. So there isn't, near the railway, one block which is only uh, social housing. Even this block, which has this rather fantastic relationship to the big park, has a, a mix of those elements. So in providing this presentation, I just want to give you a sense that the physical framework of the games plan is uh, very much been aware and very sensitive to what happens next. Hopefully, the event itself in 2012 will look spectacular. Uh, a lot of that actually is interesting, depends much more on where the cameras are, where uh, local, which is the organization responsible for actually dressing up the games, places uh, the backdrops to the television camera angles, uh, more than actually what it's like walking around that experience, because billions of people experience the games through the television rather than walking around it. But I think the key challenge has been, uh, and I pass on Andy in many ways uh, at this point, to um, leave a few very solid, strong elements which create uh, an infrastructure for social and spatial integration. Thank you. Ricky Burdett, may I introduce Andrew Altman, the Chief Executive of the Olympic Legacy Company. Okay, well, um, thank you for having me. Uh, this is my uh, debut at the London School of Economics. I appreciate it. I never imagined I'd be uh, giving a lecture at the London School of Economics, so it's a great honor to, uh, to be here. I, um, uh, I have to say what I'm going to present is, is actually, um, in many ways, it's humbling because what I'm presenting is um, the tremendous work that others have done that I'm now <coughs> in an incredibly fortunate position to be able to uh, take forward and to help execute. So uh, 
I'm the inheritor of, I think, uh, some of the most progressive land use and planning policies, which we'll talk about, uh, that have happened here in terms of uh, focusing urban development around, uh, around transport and having uh, a London plan uh, that uh, lays out a very clear and very simple picture of how London should grow, a very clear policy designation of growth to the east, uh, and particularly in this area of London, um, as, as well as uh, the work, uh, the whole conception of the Olympics as being a catalyst for the transformation, as, a, as Ricky was saying, as a, a cause, if you will, for one of the largest infrastructure projects in the world today, um, and of the work of people who are sitting here, such as Selena, Jerome, John, and others from the ODA, who frankly have um, planned this and designed this in such a way that uh, all of this makes my job I mean, I wouldn't say easy, but, but in a sense easy because the framework uh, is there uh, and uh, to be executed. So my very simple point I'm going to talk about today, and I, in fact, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the actual venues itself because I, uh, taking the topic of this uh, uh, talk um, is really a very simple point about, uh, about the growth and about this site, which is it's really about how it's integrated in terms of the physical, the social, uh, the economic, and the political fabric of the city. And I think for successful regeneration and transformation to occur, you really have to look at what the basic premise is. And I think the basic premise here is about that comprehensive integration into the fabric of the city um, in all of those aspects. So that's what I'm going to just take a few select slides to walk through how that very in some ways simple but very profound idea makes its way and actually is translated into what's happening at the Olympic site. And I think, it, uh, there are, of course, it raises as many questions as there are, there are answers, but I think getting that at least fundamental proposition right. So first, obviously, a little bit of context Ricky talked about, but to see London's future look east, just a simple slide, the fact that shows that London is growing, it's projected to grow, its population, many of you are, are familiar with this, but very important in terms of how that growth occurs, where it occurs, uh, and being done in a rational way. Um, this shows, of course, this look east, which is how London will accommodate that growth. 25% uh, of that growth could be housed in this area, uh, this area meaning in this part of East London over the next 20 years. Um, and you know, one of the things I think that's very um, interesting about the way London has grown and when you think of growth, the context of growth, it really builds on this incredible foundation, really, I would say, two really key elements. One is the whole transport network, the fact that the growth is structured around a system of transportation that's extraordinary, um, and that the eastern move of that growth is, again, going to be built on that foundation. And the Olympic site really epitomizes, in many ways, what's happening at Stratford as a, a kind of central location where bringing many different lines of communication together. And of course the fact that London is in a way unplanned, I mean that it is sort of defies planning in an interesting way because it's really built around these series of villages almost or distinct areas that have an identity, a context, a high street, uh, a sense of belonging um, and how those all get kind of connected into the larger city and metropolitan area of London is very interesting. So how those two things feature, the kind of unique identity, the building on transit, the built form that evolves from that is very powerful. When I talked about inheriting a context, there has long been talked about, of course, the move 
um, to uh, east and the Thames Gateway, which is a much larger idea about the growth not only in London but in moving southeast of how to accommodate uh, within the larger context of, of England really um, this trajectory of growth. And there have been many, many plans talked about to try to move in that direction. But I think it really took a kind of a big idea, a big organizing construct to make that plan a reality. Um, uh, so um, uh, the Olympics, of course, was that uh, idea, which was how to take an area of the city that you know, had been thought about as the trajectory of growth, had the sort of bones of it, if you will, in terms of the transit system, the potential for land, brownfield site, an area in need of revitalization, an area with the highest levels of social deprivation, and how to bring something to it. And that was the kind of basic premise of the Olympics. Um, and of course, at the announcement of the very Olympics itself, it was predicated, the whole bid, on legacy, which I think is very distinct. Not just legacy of venues, but legacy around the concept of urban transformation. Here, from the, the mayor of Newham to, uh, to uh, Tessa Jow, the secretary uh, of state, uh, now for the Olympics as well, um, who's led that, uh, talking about harnessing the games to reduce social deprivation and planning everything in mind as a legacy for one of the poorest parts of London. So built into this, wired into this, was the notion of larger transformation that could occur. Ricky showed this, um, but what is, of course, one of the great feats of this um, is the assembly of land. Uh, we can't underestimate how powerful this is in and of itself. I mean, I don't know, you know, in a... Uh, Western democracy, many uh, governments that have undertaken this large an assembly of land uh, uh, in generations. I mean, this is a huge legacy in and of itself of what of getting this into public ownership so that you can effectuate uh, urban change of this scale. So, you know, over 600 uh, hectares uh, of land put together. This is the site today. It's what it was, and this is it under construction. So I want to go back to this point then, which is the sort of proposition, and I'll only be about five minutes to go through these very quickly, because um, there will be a larger discussion and debate about this, but talking about the economic, the physical, the social, and the political, um, but, uh, whatever that is. Uh, that's because we're, you know, planners are very tentative about taking on political uh, issues, so we can't even spell it properly. But political, uh, you know, political. Uh, now, this is, and I don't want to get into a discussion of Canary War, good, bad, pro, con, but it, in a way it hangs over all of this, at least I have found coming here in my entire three months of being in London, so I can obviously, you know, postulate about this with tremendous profound knowledge, but, you know, everywhere I go it's the Canary Wharf. I hear the good, the bad, how it worked, how it didn't, it almost doesn't matter because the sort of, it's emblematic and certainly and I find as I travel around communities of East London that you have on the one hand what could be argued as a tremendous success in securing the sort of London as a global city, um, you know, financial powerhouse, etc. And the other hand, the stark contrast to what has it done for Tower Hamlets, what has it done for areas of East London. So whether that's right or wrong, it hangs over the sense of, will the Olympic site, will this be different for East London? Is this one more promise? Will it in fact be fulfilled? I'm sure we'll hear from members on the panel about this, but clearly that's there. So what will take this, in essence, what could be a gash in the fabric of London and actually connect it? Um, so I'm going to quickly go through a few things of these points about economic, uh, 
social, uh, physical, and uh, political. Economic, I think, first of all, at a very macro level, the fact that it is thought conceived of as a new metropolitan center for London is very important. Um, and that it, it, there are going to be multiple centers of growth in London, and the Olympic site, as part of a larger re uh, regeneration in East London, will be a distinctive center and is thought of in that economic constellation, if you will. So very important is economic integration, which means how do we think about what can be on the site? What will happen to the media center, the broadcast center, how that connects in with the creative energy of Hackney, one of the largest concentrations of artists uh, you know, in the world, frankly, you know, right next door. Um, how can we use this site, which has the amenities of the park and transportation, to create, in essence, almost a new urban campus, if you will. It offers tremendous possibilities for what it could hold for the economic integration and, I would say, diversification of London. Built on transit. Again, I can't emphasize this enough because if you actually go back to Canary Wharf, the problem originally is that the transport uh, infrastructure was not in. Many cities, and Ricky you know, has traveled around in the urban age and looked at this, you know, build new centers in the city and try to build the centers first and then hope transport will get there. You know, to Mexico City and Santa Fe, a new business center has no transport connection. This happens over and over and over. This is building on transport. That integration is key. It's part of a larger set of um, okay, uh, you know, centers in East London and has to be thought of such. It cannot sit as an island, but is part of the wider offer of what happens in East London. This is just an example of some. There are other centers as well that will emerge, Canning Town. But you know, these are going to be, in a way, you know, the foundation of the new growth of the city. That has to be balanced with clearly, and what Roger, I'm sure, Paul will talk about, the economic integration. That the, if you look at the number of people, the, the whole notion of convergence that, um, that um, will be talked about in a minute, but you can't just look at it as growth. You also have to look at the issues of equity, and this always has to be kept in mind as you look at just the percentage of unemployed uh, people uh, and how high that is, or people who have no qualifications, how high that is above the London average. That's the balancing act, which means that everything we do in the Olympic Park has to have what I would say that lens. That means when we're employing people, we have to figure out how it connects to you know, people in the surrounding boroughs. Uh, when we think about all the jobs that are created, as has been done, that's happened through what the ODA has done in construction, we in Legacy have to take that forward. That's anything from who's working in the park, who's working on the venues, how do we connect with Stratford and retail. You have to have this lens in mind all the time that it's not just growth, it's connecting that growth. So you have to always keep that framework. Physical integration, moving quickly. Do you want to give me a two-minute sign on that one? Okay, great. Um, this is the Olympic site, the park. Just conceptually, you can think of it. Each It is because there's water running through it. Could be all discrete islands. And you really, that's the X is the no, that's not the good thing to do. The idea is that we have to plan and think about all of the connections that go through. This is a lot of work that, as I said, colleagues have, have been working very hard on carefully planning the site to bring the connections through. Why is that so important? Very quickly, if you look at what's happened with this, this area over time, historically, even as London has grown, it's jumped over this site. I mean, look in the far there, you can see the uh, far right. Even with the growth in the 20th century, as the area becomes denser and more urbanized, you see the void in the middle, the gash in the middle that separates many communities in East London. Uh, so we have to overcome that. This shows in the 1930s how industry and the infrastructure 
created, imported as they were, did create, as has happened in cities around the world, tremendous separation that happened through uh, motorways and railways, as is shown here. Uh, it's shown in terms of land uses, purple being industrial, that this was sort of the gash, if you will, that disconnected communities. And this is, you know, in a way, the result of that. This is, these are, if you go around the site, these are some of the very intense physical barriers to the site. This is looking at the aquatic center, uh, and you can see just what happens there as you try to overcome some of these barriers. So we have to look at this site and think about how to make all of those connections. So if it goes from you know, in many ways, disconnected to connected and being planned with those in mind. One of the things that I think is, you know, being done that's, tr you know, brilliant about this is just the physical, the bridges themselves, the literally physical bridges that will connect in over 30 between, you know, the site and Hackney and communities and Leighton and all the areas that are around um, the site so that you start to put in place now those physical connections. That's just one example. Two minutes. Okay, social integration. Uh, great. Okay, so uh, you're going to hear a lot about this from Roger, so I won't talk about it. No. Um, <laughs> but you have to you have to think again with the regeneration framework. This is a very stark stark statistic. In a class of 30, 12 are living in poverty. That's astounding. So what can we do about that? First of all, you have to build into the very fabric of what's happening in the village itself, in the site itself rather, social integration. Um, this is happening with the Olympic Village. Ricky mentioned this. 50% of the housing will be affordable, creating a diverse community from the start, not hoping it'll happen later, but is sort of built into the very fabric of this. Doing that through different housing types so that there are housing opportunities built into the master planning to accommodate a range of families and lifestyles um, so that it is not monolithic, but that you have a so community that has is socially integrated and also has possibilities. Building in a school from the start, um, as part of this, this will be delivered. Uh, uh, you know, a full education campus, 1,800 places, so that on the site itself, um, social integration is very much a part of the fabric of this. But that's not enough. Clearly, you have to have that connection to the surrounding community. And you'll hear more about this. The company won't necessarily be doing this, but very important to us that as we're looking at social infrastructure, what's happening around the site, the role of how we strengthen schools, strengthen education, make those linkages, use the catalyst of the Olympics to do that. That's, I think, the promise of it. We have a lot of work to get to the delivery, and you'll hear about the strategic regeneration framework, but we have to work hand in hand, social integration of the site, investment in the surrounding community. Um, because it could, the area could have at least 70,000 new residents, but we have to be equally concerned about the residents that are there and how they're benefiting. Um, finally, uh, actually I will make it to the end of this quickly, is political integration. Um, this is uh, interesting because one of the things that I think is, is, is great about large-scale projects like this is they have the possibility of bringing together aligning interests that might not otherwise be aligned. And I think you see that in the Olympics. There's a lot of complex political and governance arrangements. You have five with a five-host boroughs. You have four immediately adjacent boroughs to the site. Uh, you have the mayor of London as a key stake. You have different ministries. Um, you have multiple community constituencies. And this is a, can be a way of galvanizing and pulling together those constituencies. And I think my observation is when you, you know, look beyond you know, um, 
you know, many day-to-day, -day, you know, natural kind of tensions that exist, this has forged a tremendous coalition. You're going to hear about the regeneration framework that's going to come forward, which has mobilized, in a way, the boroughs, the mayor, the, the ministry, to look at this larger idea of convergence, the larger way that the Olympics can be used as a transformative, not only physical, social, and economic act, but frankly, even changing the political relationships of how... Um, how uh, 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 different constituencies relate to one another and really align their interests. I'm not saying that's without controversy. I'm not saying that's not problematic. I'm not saying all kinds of issues. But frankly, I think it's really mobilized. And I think the challenge is to continue that mobilization, not only for the Olympics, but post the Olympics into the transformation that this larger regeneration that's um, been put in place continues to keep some of those, continues to keep those relationships in place. And the people who've been really working extraordinarily together, because there is nothing like a date you know, 2012 and a specific date to mobilize decision making, mobilize resources, and align interests. Um, so I think in a way I haven't gone through, there's so much I could say about the park, there's so much I could say about the venues, but I really wanted to make a simple point that at games time, um, Jerome, thank you for this, uh, this one, this uh, 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 little build up we're going to do, but games time, you know, you have um, obviously in a sense it has to be kind of gated, if you will, I mean, because it is for the game, so people have to enter and you have to control access. The venues are there, the park is there, people are enjoying it. And then the challenge right after games as you go into this next period of the Olympics, 2012-2014, you start to do what's called the transformation, which is the opening up of the site, starting to put in, as you can see, um, integrating into the city, the streets, the road networks, the bridges, um, reinstatement of the park, 100 hectares of park and a tremendous legacy being left that could be a great gathering point in public space for East London and the network of public spaces that exist. And you start to move into 2014 to 2019, the first five years post-reinstatement, post-transformation, when you see the first phases of development, the Olympic Village set, people occupying it, um, uh, you know, more development happening, and again, more connections happening out to the neighbors in the boroughs East London as it ultimately <laughs> builds out and becomes just a normal piece of the city um, that no longer will be a gash or a void, but will be hopefully a catalyst for regeneration and fits in as just a part uh, of the city and what I think is one of the most um, exciting and promising uh, regeneration projects um, that um, we'll certainly see in our lifetime and I would say would be a model um, globally as to hopefully uh, how to do regeneration right because the basic premise of integration uh, was built into the very DNA of the site from the beginning. Thank you. Thank you. May we welcome Paul Bacall. Hi. <coughs> Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm going to move over to the left here. It's not a political thing. It's just if I stand there, I look at the screen instead of looking at you. So I apologize for that. Right. A couple of days after the bid was won, Tessa Chance, an Olympic javelin gold medalist, picked up the phone to us at Newham Council. And she said, I reckon that there are in your school a couple of young people who are medalists in 2012. They don't know it yet. In fact, they have a pair of running shoes yet. And I haven't been to find them. So we said, that sounds like a very good idea. We'll back you. We backed her with some money. And we set up something called the Newham Sports Academy. It now has 60 young people competing successfully, many of them internationally, many of them winning medals. Some of them who hadn't put on a pair of athletic shoes um, 
four years ago, coupled with mentoring support, partnership with Leonard Cheshire to make this work for disabled young people too, broadening the private funding as well as our own funding into it. Very successful. Just one recent success story. New source, fencing, uh, fencing group. 2005 formed, now completing um, nationally and internationally. The first people ever to win awards at the London Youth Games who had not been privately educated and coming out of new schools. But what we wanted to do was link that to our investment in mass participation in sport. So again, with the free swims which we pioneered in London now and works all across the country. We have the summer of sports every summer, 264,000 young people this summer. Athletics network investment in new facilities. And as a result of this over four years, we've quadrupled more or less number of sports clubs. We've, uh, what's that, six times as many sports coaches. And our youth participation in sports has been transformed. Newham was useless. We were bottom of all the government tables for the amount of participation <coughs> in sports and physical activity that young people had. Now we're either top or fourth in the UK, depending on which table you use. So we think that in this story, there are some clues as to how you create social and economic legacy out of the Olympics. The first is, really, capture the magic of the Olympics and harness this magical thing to achieve broader social and economic aims. The second is the way of working. Tessa is an amazing person, but she's not unique. She's, an, she's a social entrepreneur with a passion. And if you can link that then to resource from a council or from elsewhere that's ambitious for change, uh, then there's an opportunity. And the third thing, really, is to get on with it and not wait for someone else to create legacy for you. Um, it's like this, really. I think the games will be a wonderful spectacle, and the construction of the park is a fantastic spectacle. And if you've not been to Stratford, you must go there now and see what these guys in the ODA are doing. It is marvellous. But the Olympics is a juggernaut. It has to be, and it will roll right on over you if you do not um, uh, grab hold of the opportunities. And I think that's what the story tells for us. So we broadened this uh, into volunteering. We had no volunteering in Newham to speak of. We now have over 4,000 registered volunteers. They're linked to the training and employment opportunities for people. And they do a lot of our event management, the first Newham 10K run, for example, a lot of other uh, management. And we've linked that also to the way in which we encourage people to get involved in their place in civic engagements. Uh, away with the, you know, sitting around in drafted church halls moaning at people. Uh, using councillors, and into active participation. In terms of jobs, which is very important, we set up on the back of the Olympics workplace, which is our shop front uh, for job brokerage in Stratford and Canning Town. That's a public-private partnership. And the idea is to capture that idea that you might get a job in the Olympics. So people will come through the door because maybe they're going to get a job in the Olympics. We've seen 2,700 people get jobs, and some of them are getting jobs in the Olympics, these are a bit older, I think it was earlier in the year when there were 4,000 people on site, 800 odd from the host boroughs, it's jobs, but it's not that many jobs, but actually the bulk of these people are realising that there is a world of work out there and they're getting jobs elsewhere. So again, the Olympic magic, the Olympic hook, links to our broader social aims. And the real prize for jobs, and you mentioned earlier, is called Stratford City, opens pretty soon now, 18,000 retail jobs there, that's the prize for the people of East London, uh, if they can come into those on the back of the excitement that the Olympic legacy is coming. And the Stratford Retail Academy is a part of doing that. Small businesses too. I had um, just, again, a couple of days after the bid, I wrote something in the local paper about um, the number of people who will be coming. And a guy who runs a sandwich shop in Stratford, uh, a little, um, little booth, 
phone me up and said, I see there's going to be half a million people or whatever it is coming to the Stratford site every day. That's a lot of sandwiches. I would like to be making their sandwiches. How do I get the contact? And whether or not he's gone there yet, I don't know. But again, we find, and uh, at least on the business place and compete for are things that we're doing with our partners, is that people will come in thinking they can get an Olympic contract. What they find is, as a small business, they can't get any public sector contract. So you can then begin to fix those things, and they will then find that there's a local authority or the health service, all sorts of other people for whom they might do work. All of this is made kind of easier too, because people are beginning to queue up to come work with us. And these are some examples. Birkbeck University um, have come and set up their... Um, uh, with us in partnership with UEL, the London International Film Festival. We're working with GE on some of our technology and housing, which is exciting. How did that? The Olympic <coughs> team from India has come. All of these people are coming to, uh, to Newham because, to East London because of the Olympics. And so that creates a marvellous opportunity to lever in all of that good activity and so forth. So this is work that I guess the council has led on. The council has experienced leadership, but there's also important leadership from communities. And I'll show you this. Uh, just to say that Islamists are not all the curmudgeonly uh, people, angry people shouting at each other that one might imagine, um, but that actually East Londoners are creative and entrepreneurial people. And so much of the um, leadership also springs from East London communities. And I was asked to give a couple of examples from my day job, which I'm going to do, uh, because this is the kind of uh, enthusiasm, this is the kind of East London spirit that we want to capture. Uh, so I'm just going to talk very briefly about a cluster of social enterprises, probably by both Centre, Popular Parker, uh, and the South Generation, which I work for, which are located one minute and 42 seconds from the Olympic Stadium. That's 800 metres away, and that was Sebco's best time over 800 metres. He would have had trouble with the bow fly over here, which may have slowed down, uh, but that's about the size of it. Very close, uh, very, uh, a big area of East London. Probably by both Centre, internationally nationally known now, healthy, the first healthy living centre in the country, first children's centre in the country, a social enterprise hub set up 24 social enterprises in East London over the last four years, uh, runs the university with the University of East London actually, degree courses on estates, 850 students, the biggest uh, adult provider of, of further higher education outside of college, and an uh, inspiration for things like the United Fit Programme, which is a programme for building health centres across the world. So this is local community leading. This is the local community innovating uh, and, and innovating in service change too on the doorstep of the Olympics. Pop Harker is a local housing company uh, operates in this area here, owns 8,500 homes, community led, led by residents, resident board. Uh, and of course it's about the refurbishment of homes, driving up the quality of services, but also taking a hold of this piece of, of land and transforming it, transforming the physical nature of this, which suffers from so many of the kinds of dislocations and poor planning or lack of planning that you've heard about from the first two speakers. Uh, and his job is easy, he's got to do almost that new build in a place where there isn't anything, because we have to do it in a place where there are already 50,000 people living. But uh, that's Poplar Harker, a big job led by residents who have learned how to take part in what this is a billion pound programme in Poplar. And ourselves, this side of generation, uh, building infrastructure in the Lowly Valley, the station we built. This is um, actually where our offices are, a 500 year old building on the Black Tunnel Approach Road, which is a um, small business space. And then uh, our latest thing, which you'll read in the Evening Standard in a rather strange article today, the ViewTube. ViewTube is um, a structure on top of the Greenway, 50 yards away from the stadium, publicly accessible. It's made out of 
lightweight shipping containers because this is a sewer bank, so we don't want to put some North London out of business by crushing their sewers. Uh, and this is an uh, inspiration really of the OBA, Jerome and uh, Alison and his colleagues in, who phoned us up about this idea, uh, and the London Central Development Corporation, the who own the land. So we built this in about three and a half months, Jerome, I think, didn't we? So, uh, and it now is the centre for the Field Studies Council, the London Wildlife Trust, the Blackbirds, and the County Company to begin to run a programme of, um, of activities for local community organisations, social enterprises, doing good business there, and a place where visitors can come and view the fantastic things that are happening in the Olympic Games. Um, I have to say, working with the ODA was, uh, was awesome. They are an awesome, <laughs> they have to be, organisation. Although I must say, we've finished our venue, you, you've still got a way to go with yours. <laughs> <coughs> Why does any of this matter? And I think this is a map that shows that Andrew's begun to look at this. This is these are the indices of deprivation from 2007. Dark is bad, and you can see the concentration of these um, wards, this is on a ward basis in the east of London, and the Olympic site is there. And so that shows you the, the way we have to make up uh, to bring East London even up to the rest of London standard. And I just want to focus you on that piece of the map that's below the valley. This is the Thames, this is the River Leash running up here again, the Olympic Park is just there. And I'm going to overlay on that 2007 figures. Another map, hopefully, and you'll see, I'll just run it back, how that maps on particularly these central walls of the Lowly Valley. And that's a deprivation map of Charles Booth, mapped onto that from 1898. And actually, if you look at a street by street, even in a state by state basis, of so the states that weren't there 100 years ago, there's an uncanny match. And actually, Charles Booth's maps should be hanging above the desks of any of us who think we're going to make a difference to cities. It's a chilling, slight thing. I also want to show this map to show you this border. It's the border along the Thames, like the River Lee, uh, between the five coast boroughs, which are there. It's an ancient border. It was first established 1,200 years ago, <laughs> and it was a border between the Saxons and the Danes. And so, you know, Roger's job is to uh, overcome this political boundary and to overcome a hundred years of deprivation. It's a tough job, but I'm glad that, that you're doing it, Roger. Um, I don't know whether you believe in psychogeography or Celtic spirituality or whatever it is, but there seems to be a story of poverty and exclusion written into this landscape that's many, many centuries old, in fact. Um, and it's a story written over generations, and our job is to rewrite the story in, in age and our generation. And I think chief amongst the writers of this new story of East London will be at the Olympic Park Legacy Company, and Andy has explained it, how this will become this. But actually our task, as Genesis indicated, is to turn East London upside down, and to make Stratford a new metropolitan centre, and to make it really the third great centre of East London, alongside... Uh, city. It is, after all, in East London, more or less, postcode in the, in the city, and Canary Wharf. Um, but also to link these things together as part of a new water city in East London, taking account of the water that um, Ricky talked about all the way down to the Thames, the Royals, the Greenwich Peninsula, and create a new great water city in East London along this place. Because it is fantastically well connected by the International Railway, by Crossrail to come, by the airport, by the road and rail network of London, the south east and up to the north. It is 
going to be a beautiful waterside parkland setting. A beautiful setting for homes, for businesses, for universities, for leisure. And the Olympic Park will illustrate this. The Olympic Park will begin to show this very soon, but this is what we can see in the whole sweep down to the river. Uh, we need to achieve it across the whole area. So if the place is attractive to investors and the people who want to come and build this new place, so are the people. The, the population of East London are young, they're diverse, it's the most diverse population on the planet, bar none. Creative, entrepreneurial people who know now how to go with the grain, how to drive, how to be the champions of radical change in our cities and not uh, the curmudgeons that perhaps we were even 10, 20 years ago. So that's our aim, and that's the purpose of our activity, and that is the legacy that we look for. And I leave you with this. It's a painting by a friend of mine, Frank Krieber, who's a Walter City artist. I think it's a sort of bad day in the Lonely Valley, really. <laughs> but it captures something of the sort of heroic and chaotic and exciting nature of trying to bring something new out of um, the old thing that's already there. Thank you, and finally we welcome Roger Taylor. Rushing to the stand in order to make sure that I get the most of my 15 minutes. Um, I'm sorry there are no pictures. There aren't even any words, but I, I'd really like it if you left that up because that's good. Um, because what I want to talk about is not about buildings and it's not about plans. It's about people and the challenges and opportunities which there are. And I'm going to start off by just reading you a few words which come from the UK Olympic bid. Dwell on them. The most enduring legacy of the Olympics will be the regeneration of an entire community for the direct benefit of everyone who lives there. Now it's from the base of that commitment um, that the five host boroughs, Waltham Forest, Hackney, Tower Hamlets, Newham and Greenwich, have embarked upon the development of the 20-year strategic regeneration framework for the whole of the host boroughs area. And it's just worth pausing for a moment to think about some of the stuff that we've been through, like uh, what do we mean by legacy um, and who does it apply to? Um, and, and we do need to remind ourselves, as I think everybody has done tirelessly, that the real reason the Olympics are in this part of London is because of a consciousness and a recognition that this was the most physically and socially deprived community in the city. Now, as we looked at this issue of what legacy meant, um, we also came very clearly to the view um, that the games themselves this is heresy the games themselves would not necessarily bring about the regeneration of an entire community for the direct benefit of everyone who lives there in fact I think experience of the past shows that by and large uh, the biggest mistake policymakers make sometimes is to assume that simply by investing in the infrastructure whatever it is you automatically have the effect of bringing benefits to the community that lives there. You don't, and that's what Andrew was talking about when he talked about the early stages of the development of Canary Wharf. So, um, what we saw was that not necessarily being the sole 
driver of regeneration, the Olympics in 2012 at the development site were nevertheless a hugely powerful catalyst in many ways. Anyway, having done that and got that far, we decided we really needed to take stock of what the host boroughs were about. Um, what, what did make up this community of one and a quarter million people living from Epping Forest in the north down to Eltham in the south? And there are four characteristics beyond anything else which are quite unique about this part of London. <coughs> Firstly, and nobody's mentioned it yet, so I have the fun of doing it, over the next 30 years, uh, if we look at the developments which are planned, both in the public and the private sector, we are looking at an investment in this part of London of something in the order of 30 billion. Um, that will create somewhere between 150 and 250,000 jobs. Hard to say how quickly it will take place, but it will happen. Uh, and we know that because many of the developments that we're talking about are already well underway. Planning permission has already been granted for the doubling in the size of Canary Wharf. We know what's going to happen in Stratford City. Uh, we know what's going to happen with the onward development of the Greenwich waterfront and we have total faith in the Olympic Park company to deliver the Olympic Park. Just dwell on that for a moment. We can't think of anywhere else in Western Europe where that scale of investment in the public and private sector is going into an area this tight and this closely defined. Now, set that against the fact that the second most unique thing about this part of London is that it is, by any measure of deprivation, and there are lots of them, the most deprived community in England, and by far and away the most disadvantaged community in London. And it absolutely doesn't matter whether you look at educational attainment, the skills that people achieve, the number of people in long-term worklessness, the level of overcrowding, the, the mortality rates and the age mortality rates of the population, all the levels of violent crime they experience in every single respect. This is the worst place to live in England. And it's a disgrace. We should all take responsibility for that we've been sitting here watching this for well over 100 years and we haven't cracked the problem yet. So, um, that was another very distinct characteristic of this part of London. The third one is that, again, quite uniquely for London, the local authorities, the London boroughs who are there, what we choose to call ourselves the host boroughs, have done something which is remarkable and unique in London. That's to say they've actually started talking to each other without being pushed into it by the mayor. So what we've actually got is from a very early, very loose federation, we've now got a very tight formal structure which is delivering a range of services across the five boroughs as a whole. And I think what that means is that if we do have ambitious plans about regeneration, then we've got a framework to do it with. And it's a framework which nobody else has quite got to doing in the rest of London. In fact, the only example that I can think of is the association of the local authorities in Greater Manchester, which has been there for a long time. I know that because I established it in 1986. So there we are. Um, and then the last thing which is unique about this area, we, we can't avoid this. We are uniquely 
the host of about 70% of the entire Olympic Games. Um, and leaving aside the huge impact they have on the place as a, as a physical entity, don't forget, they also represent a symbol of ambition and confidence. They create a new environment and they are an exemplar for what we expect the development of East London from now on to look like. They stimulate obviously closely connected legacies like sport and culture. And, and it's something which we still need to monitor and research, we think they probably have a very beneficial effect in driving up property values, which may be very significant when you think about some of the vast areas of beautiful but dilapidated Victorian terraces of Leighton, Leightonstone, Walthamstow, and around there. So, there we are. Those are the four unique characteristics about this part of London. Um, you might say, well, some of those will be shared by places like Barking and Dagenham when you come to see privation. We agree with you. But the one thing which makes us even more unique is we're where the Olympic Games are, and that's that. Um, now, um, I just want to move on then to say that, that the, taking those things together was the reason why we decided that we needed to do something which we chose to call a strategic regeneration framework. We wanted something which would guide the activities, not just of the local authorities, God forbid, but also all of our other local partners, the private sector, the public sector, and the various tiers of government. We wanted to address that. We wanted to address it over a long-term period of time, so we called it a regenerative framework, not a plan. And the first iteration of the strategic regeneration framework, you're all welcome to have copies of it, um, is, was something which was agreed only about three weeks ago by government, the Mayor of London, and the five host boroughs. And it's founded on the organising principle that the central purpose of everything that we are going to do within the framework is to secure that over 20 years we achieve socio-economic convergence between this part of London and the circumstances of life that average Londoners all over the metropolis enjoy. We call that convergence. Um, it's not really a catchy title, but it is absolutely the heart of what we think. It means, for example, we want to see the age at which, on average, men die rising in this part of London by four years. Um, it means we want to see levels of violent crime dropping from 40% as they are untypically in East London to 16% which is a London average. It means we have to get at least 40,000 people who probably haven't worked for well over a year back into jobs. Those are the scales of the challenges which hide behind an elegantly simple and clear proposition like convergence. And that's what we're determined to do, and it's what the government and the mayor and all our other partners say they are willing to support and get themselves involved in achieving. In other words, put it in a really simple way, we want to achieve outcomes that ensure that the people who live in our communities enjoy similar lives and similar life chances to average Londoners. Is that too much to hope for? I say there's no preordained reason why, given a sustained commitment from all levels of government and the public, the private and the voluntary sector, uh, we cannot achieve it. Now, I just want to spend a couple of minutes talking about some things which might be interesting to some of you.
Um, because what we've, what we've discovered as we've been through the strategic regeneration framework work is that it's thrown up some really quite interesting things about the government of London and such like, which are just worth highlighting. Each one of them, in my view, is well worth um, a last year thesis. The first one is that the strategic regeneration framework is based on a concept of an inner East London sub-region. Uh, it ignores the river and it challenges the previously normally top-down views about what a sub-region in the metropolis ought to look like. Good. It's high time in London that we started to think about ways of governing this city which were more flexible, were related to affinities of interest between parts of the city and empowerment of those affinities of interest to move in a direction which they thought was sensible. This is an excellent idea. It's about fuzzy boundaries, shifting responsibilities, and a supportive, a supportive regional and national government uh, sector. So, the Mayor's response in the first draft of the London Plan, which you've probably all been reading, is actually very, very welcome. Um, the next thing is that the strategic regeneration framework runs the risk that people who are not in the five boroughs will say, oh, that's not fair because you're not doing anything to our area, and in fact you may even be disadvantaging other places. It's an issue. It's one we're very alive to and think is very, very significant in our planning. But we believe, believe very, very firmly that in East London, Unless we start somewhere with a radical approach to its regeneration, we don't get anywhere. And quite often, in major regeneration projects, the lowest common denominator is the worst enemy we all face. Um, the third thing which has happened with this is that the regeneration framework has raised some really important questions about the future role um, of a metropolitan area, our area, that has historically been regarded as the place to accommodate heavy, unattractive antisocial industries and the location of accommodation for poor and immigrant communities. Now, there's some interesting things happening. Given the scale of investment which I've described and our determination to improve the socioeconomic circumstances of people live in our area, it's very unlikely that that situation can continue indefinitely which raises important questions about how we do accommodate our most undesirable industries across the metropolis and how we deal decently and fairly with a very disadvantaged group who steadily come attracted by the jobs and the work and the low-cost housing into the metropolis of London. Because at the moment, uh, the decisions we make or the implicit decisions we make about those things across London as a whole are very much skewed towards a very small part of the city. So, for example, if it comes to new housing, in all the housing plans, the five boroughs that make up the host boroughs are being expected to accommodate somewhere in the region of 48% of all new housing on 16% of London's land mass. Now, somehow, there are some important questions in there which, if we're brave enough and honest enough, we need to start unpicking. Here's another one, and then I'll stop talking about this and go on to say what the strategic regeneration framework is. Oh, well, that's fine. I've got bags of time. 
Um, as you look at this area, it starts to look like a coherent entity. Um, it has all the hallmarks of a living community of one and a quarter million people. Um, retail, commercial, financial, sporting, leisure, and so on and so forth. Um, and it raises some extraordinarily interesting questions as you think about it as a city within a larger metropolitan area. These are words, incidentally, that the Greater London Authority hate. Um, but if you think about it in those terms as a huge town within the Greater Metropolitan London, then it raises some really interesting questions about whether or not our brilliant east-west communication system is actually serving well the interests of an interconnected, basically, north-south community. I'm going to say one or two very quick things about the strategic regeneration framework. What it does is it locks on to the seven key elements which we, and most people believe, are about trying to remedy deprivation and disadvantage in our communities. Skills, education, worklessness, child poverty, housing quality, health and crime. And in each case what we've done is understand where we think the rest of London is going to be in 20 years time and therefore what is the point at which we need to achieve convergence with that. So we have set ourselves some very demanding outcomes which are now in the process of developing into a much more detailed set of action plans with central and regional government. And their enthusiasm for doing this is terrific. So, three questions. Um, the first one is this. Do we think there can be real socio-economic legacy from the 2012 Games? Definitely there can be. What will it look like? It ought to look like a radical improvement in the lives and the life chances of the communities who live there. Will it happen? Yes, but only with the kind of sustained commitment to change and partnership which we've described. And what about money? That's what the civil servants always ask. Of course, realising this kind of legacy is going to require more funding, especially in terms of infrastructure. You can't accommodate that many more people and that much more business without spending a huge amount on further infrastructure investment. Um, but our argument is really simple. Um, investing in this element of legacy within the host boroughs makes perfect sense in the way that it unleashes very significant economic and fiscal benefits for the country as a whole. So it's there to be taken therefore ambitious and courageous people who are prepared to take a sustained look at regeneration over a 20-year period, unabashed by the disciplines of electoral timetables. Uh, we've got loads of paper. Any of you who are doing any research projects, if you think it would be interesting, we're very, very happy to supply it to you. You've only got to get in touch with the host boroughs. You thank you for listening to me. Thank you, Roger Taylor, and thank you for anticipating some of the questions that I'm sure people uh, would want to address to all of you from the floor. We do have around 20 minutes um, for questions. I, we have roving mics. 
and uh, I will ask, I will take questions in groups of three, uh, and I'll ask you please to keep them as brief as possible, and then we'll turn them over to the panel. First one is right up the back, and I think there must be a mic approaching from the front, in fact. God, what it is to be fit. Um, I'm from Tower Hamlets, uh, involved with um, local government there for a very long time and the Lee Valley Authority. Um, I hope the picture given to you by the last speaker is one um, that, you know, like a third world country or undeveloped um, area. It's very, very mixed and it has had previous very good planning that somebody, if anybody wants to do research, look at the Stratford Partnership, which gave you the Jubilee Lines and the Garrett, you know, that whole area, and was across three boroughs. Um, it's good, you know, it's a very successful planning, which I think perhaps has not happened now. I want to make, it's really two points. Uh, you mentioned at the end there funding. Very many of us local people feel that the funding that you're, you have at the moment which is at risk, is not going to, the legend that you're talking about is going to suffer. And I wondered why you haven't looked at other sources of funding, you know, particularly from the business rates and from, uh, you know, and, and making the police, the security, a national question rather than a London uh, question. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, you know, we think otherwise it will be um, at, at risk. And finally, um, the roads now, the feeder roads to the Olympic roads now are absolutely gridlock, just like they were when I came here. They're absolutely gridlock. The planning has allowed buildings to go right to the pavement areas. And I think a good walk around those back streets would be very helpful to getting access to those areas. I know that's a little bit off the point, but it is those funding and the, you know, those areas that I think are important. Thank you. There's a question. Uh, the first, the, the second arm, sorry, that you come to, just, just here, three rows in front. Hi, thank you. Um, I was wondering if there's been any policies suggested or agreements decided upon um, that ensure that the regeneration that you're talking about um, is going to take place for the existing community. So things like reserving jobs, a percentage of jobs for the existing community or reduced rates for the use of facility, facilities, like that kind of thing. Okay, perhaps you can backtrack to the, the person you had to walk past. Hi, um, you said that you've mentioned it's a very uh, economically deprived area. Can you tell me why there are just 87 apprentices, construction apprentices, on site? And are there plans to bring more on, and when? When will this happen? Thank you. Let's, let's take a round. I'm not sure who wants to take up some of those. Um, no, no, from amongst the panel here, you can't refer them to people in the audience. Uh, questions, first of all, about the, the sustainability of funding and the relationship between national and local level, fun level funding. Partly the conditions that people have to live in in the lead up to 2012, let alone what happens afterwards, gridlock and so on. And then um, the questions about policy and economic development. Shall I have a go at the money thing? Yes. Um, we... We deliberately decided, as, as a matter of act, that we would 
found our approach first and foremost on understanding how we can work more effectively together and we didn't want to say that this was just another attempt to stick a huge begging bowl in front of the government because we didn't think it would butter any parsnips anyway because we've already had 9 billion and we want another 5 billion for the additional infrastructure. And, but there's a more subtle point in that. Um, one of the reasons why we don't want to take part in total space in East London is because we think it will reveal the extent of the various programmes of investment which have gone into East London over recent years. And if the problems of East London, and I, I entirely accept your point that there's lots of great things going on there, but we might as well be honest today and say there are still massive problems. But if the problems of East London could have been solved by throwing money at them, we would have got a lot closer to solving them in the last few years. And so we wanted to lay the emphasis on saying, how can we do better? How can we get the Metropolitan Police, for example, to stop using a performance system which means that they choose to ignore levels of violent crime in an area provided they're meeting their, their performance requirement for the whole of the metropolis? How can we make better inroads into the appalling muddle which is the skills training market in this country at the moment? And there are things that we can do in those areas and we ought to do those first because it isn't as though we're going to be in a situation economically where there's going to be much spare cash anyway. That's the end part of the question I want to deal with. Do you want to respond on how can you assure the benefits will remain? I, on the general them? funding and the investment question, I mean, and I, I'm just going to agree with you, really. You know, we're a local authority, so we will fight for every spare cent of public money that's available, and we'll fight for every unfair advantage that we can possibly give to any one of our residents. But at the end of the day, I think I'm agreeing with you, we won't succeed with that. Actually, what we have to do is we have to be better. We have to be good. So the appeal to, to people is, you know, if you want a job, you want a apprentice, be competitive. Be able to go in that and do that, and that's what we have to support you with. I suspect a lot of the, of the, the, the future funding is about investment. It's about you going out into the world and getting investors to come and invest in this place, because we think it's a fantastic place for people to be in business, and we think that the workforce there is going to be fantastic. So that is, after all, what the Olympics is all about, and that's the me that message can get through to us all. The Olympics is about being good. It's not about, you know, um, it's about having your your um, ambitions and potential supportive. But at the end of the day, it's about being good. So we just have, whoever we are, local residents, whether we're the local authority, local business, we have to be better at what we do. Can you take some questions from this side? Oh, hi, good evening. I've lived in um, the borough of Waltham Forest for a number of years. I have to say, um, over the years, what I've seen in terms of the arts and cultural side, anything remotely interesting has always been grassroots and artist-led. I found anything coming from council really wanting. You only need to go into uh, Waltham Still Town Centre right now. There's an empty, empty plot of land. There is the saddest and loneliest ice rink right in the middle with a Christmas tree tucked in the far corner. What I'm driving at is, it's very hard for me as a citizen to connect with what I'm seeing daily with the fluffy images there. I know that's the big vision. Ordinary people around, I've never ever felt any excitement for London 2012, which is a real shame. So the question I'm really asking is, how do we ensure that the Olympic Park 
will not turn out to be eco silo in the long run. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a question just behind you and to your left. Very simple question. Could you do something this big without an Olympic Games? Okay. And then there's one in the middle Could you do of the, this big without the Olympic Games. Thanks. Um, how convinced are you that the people who are socially and economically deprived who you're seeking to serve with all of these new buildings aren't actually going to move further east and to another area of Essex and beyond. Will it really help them? Thank you. Um, Andy and Mickey, do you want to respond to the first point about the, the white elephant <coughs> threat? So the How to ensure that the Olympic Park itself doesn't become an isolated... Yeah, okay, yeah, sure. Um, well, I think it's a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I think the, um, th as I was talking in the presentation, I think you know, a lot of the work that we'll have to do at the, at the Legacy Company um, in terms of, you know, we will be in the fortunate position of inheriting these this great set of assets, frankly. And I think it's what we do with them and how we use them to make the connections you're talking about that will be the sort of litmus test of whether this has been successful. So, for example, the park and all the facilities that are there, the stadium, the aquatic center, the velo facility, the handball facility, which can be a multi-purpose facility, all of those, I think how they connect to the surrounding community. I mean, we're now looking at all the programming, the uses for all of those uh, venues, how the waterways can be used. I mean, all of those to me have to, I think this is our challenge, to be honest, which is how to engage with the local communities so they feel ownership of this park so that this park isn't isolated. And I think it's a, you know, it's a legitimate challenge, and I think that's one the company has to take on, so that the programming of events, how people can see this park, not as something that's isolated, but very much in the fabric of the community, you know, that's something we're gonna have to work, I think, very hard at. The fortunate thing is we have a couple years to do that, to build the relationships with the local communities, to get the ideas about how they want to use the park. Um, so I think, in, in some ways, what we've been left with is, this great canvas, and now we have to fill it up so people take that ownership, see themselves in it, and, it began, and, um, and uh, uh, you know, take part in it. Because by definition, the Olympic Games, everything right now is geared, you know, for that event that'll happen, you know, in a period of time. Um, but at the same time that we're planning for the Olympics, we'll be planning for post-Olympics. So I think that's really what the whole goal of setting up the legacy company is about, is to make those explicit uh, connections uh, with the community in terms of programming, use, and uh, frankly, ownership of this as a park uh, that's part of East London. Mm -hmm. And Ricky, could it have been done without the Olympic Games? Well, just add, add on that. Um, I mean, I, I think a few years ago, I remember the design team coming up with a, uh, a diagram showing how many links there were east west through the, that larger site. One. After the Games, there will be at least six or seven major east-west axes and others which are north-south. I think we've invested in something like 37 bridges, and the bridges are all about crossing bits that you couldn't otherwise cross. Many of them are pedestrian, some of them are vehicular. So at least you have an infrastructure of connectivity there, which if the programming is right, therefore many of the other issues which are not, nothing to do with space and all to do with ownership programming and activity. Uh, if those are implemented, at least you've got that there. I think the answer to the question, would it ever happen? The answer is no. 
I mean, it was amazing to see the pictures from the booth formats. Yeah. Absolutely stunning. I, have, I hadn't realized that they're at the microcosm, <coughs> they're, real, they're exactly matching what's happening now. I, I, these are these famous maps where in, done a hundred years ago, and uh, which show that uh, in red where the, the, the poorest areas of London were. And <coughs> where the Bangladeshis lived. Any answers? No. And the last question for myself as an urban sociologist, if we can answer it, I can pack up my tent and go home. How do you ensure that the benefits reach? I mean, it's, a, it's the question, actually. <laughs> and it's why the maps are the way they are. And it's what my parents did. They made it and they moved east. It's what generations have done before. And we know they do it now. So all the research we do in Newham, the, the longitudinal research we do, says that people move in poor and people move out are better off. So it's, it's the thing to crack which is why we changed our mission statement to live and work and stay in Europe, just to show we knew it was important. And the answers are what you'd expect them to be. Is, you know, it's about um, a number of things. It's about housing, so it's about make, breaking up the social housing monocultures. It's about places, there being places that people, once they become aspirational working people, can afford to live in. Um, it's about having those in places that are pleasant to live in, top quality places with all the amenity that might be there. It's about the schools. So that's why we've, you know, across the place, been investing so much in driving up the quality of achievement in our schools because that's a major, major reason why people move to Essex, to go to better schools in their minds. So all of those sorts of things, health services, and other, all of those obvious things, really, are things we have to focus on and fight hard for in order to get people just to stay, really. Uh, and to mix the things. Do you want to talk to Roger probably wants to. I, I'm, yeah. okay, here's an anecdote. In 1983, I had just finished off trying to mop up what was left of the immediate impact of the Moss Side Riots in Manchester, and we had an urban development grant to double the number of employees in Scottish and Newcastle Brewery there. And we did, and we had an elaborate training programs so that we were taking people out of Moss Side, training them, and they were going into the brewery. And six months later, we were walking around, of course, with the Prince of Wales. And he stops at this chappy and says to him, how are you enjoying your job? And he says, it's very good. He says, and um, where are you living now? And he says, Winslow. He said, do you think now I've got a decent job, I'd stop in Moss Side? <laughs> it's, it's a timeless problem. We don't solve it except by improving the communities that we have. Can I just go back to uh, would it have happened without the games? I mean, it, it is interesting that in 2003-2004, so before London made the bid, uh, there was a massive private investment for something called Stratford City, which of course nearly completed, which is a shopping centre. Now, even though a number of individuals involved in that master plan are here, I have to say that if that had been realized, it would have been a bit like Canary Wharf. It would have been a massive shopping development with maybe a, some office and everything else, and it would have been a dead end. The fact that London won the games, and therefore one had to create a park with facilities which therefore connected to the west, to the north, to the south, and also east, made the difference. And I think that's the risk, of course, of a city which has a history of private development-led uh, change, which didn't uh, connect back to what the great Georgian tradition of townscape and connectivity, I think, has done. This is the great potential that we can get right here. Okay. 
That was very good. Oh, uh, <laughs> no, uh, you know, I just want to say, I, I think from a, let me take a very parochial view from the Olympic Park Legacy Company and what Legacy mm -hmm. can do. I think in some ways, you know, you have to start with a mindset. Um, and a mindset when we talk about uh, regeneration that takes into, I, mean, you know, I have to, I think our challenge is to take what Rogers laid out, which is a concept of convergence. And that has to find its way into everything we do. And I think that can be, you know, as important in small acts as it is in big policies. So what I mean by that is, you know, and I guess I can only give by example my own experience when I was doing the um, revitalization of the waterfront in Washington, D.C. And, you know, you had a choice about how we were going to build a river wall. And you had a choice between going out for a standard contractor, and I could have built the river wall very simple. It was just basic academy, easy to do. Or, you know, we partnered with a nonprofit organization that was working with some of the most um, troubled youth, African-American youth in the city and one of the highest poverty districts in the city, which was the subject of a 60 Minutes, which is our big documentary show every Sunday night called Endangered Species. And it was about African-American youth and took a risk and said, we will work with them and actually promised that if they work with this organization, build the waterfront themselves, be a part of that, and then would sort of offer a ladder of opportunity. So I think even small things, if you have the right mindset, can start to make those connections. And that's not unique to Washington, it's been done here. I've listened to Bromley by Bo and seen what they've done. A social entrepreneurship model that looks at everything through that lens starts to create opportunity. And that's what I think the Olympics is doing and through legacy will continue to do, just taking each of those each of those elements of looking for the social entrepreneurship opportunities, looking forward in. So it's housing opportunity, employment opportunity, training opportunity. It's all about a mindset that sees community ownership <coughs> and participation at the heart of what legacy is about. We have two questions at either end of the fourth row here and then one up the back. Um, thanks. I'm Barry Mason. Um, the Olympics, uh, special, uh, sorry, some special pleading for a piece of legacy for the 1948 Olympics. Um, that's when the Olympics was last in London. Um, I'm from Southwark, and in Southwark, Kern Hill Velodrome is used all the time by cyclists. Um, 300 cyclists used it last Saturday, but the place is slowly crumbling, and we can't get any money to fix the place. Um, and yet, Britain will get a lot of gold medals, presumably, in the next Olympics through cycling. A lot of those cyclists trained at Herne Hill. Sadly, most of them have forgotten the place and now go to Manchester. So all you big checkbooks in here, please let's have some money for Herne Hill Velodrome and look after that legacy too. Thanks. Yeah, um, I appear here to that. I used to cycle at the Eastway Cycle Circuit, which has been a victim of uh, the Olympics, which I hope will be redressed at some point, as well as a number of other things I used to use in the area that I've lived in all my life. I've worked in housing in the area for the last 20 years, and it's housing that I want to ask the panel about, because you've talked a lot about legacy, you've talked a lot about integration and the social dynamics of what's going to happen after the Olympics, but the biggest issue, the biggest issue bar none in East London is housing. There are 23,000 people on the housing waiting list in Tower Hamlets where I live, similar numbers in the other boroughs around the site. And yet looking at the policy that you're currently pursuing on housing, for every hundred new homes you build, I would say, having worked in this field for a long time, about 17 will be available or affordable in any genuine sense 
to the people on those lists. And so I think if you want to make a real lasting contribution to our area, what you need to do is use what is actually public land. We own the land around the Olympics, and I don't think a return of 17% for people in housing need is an adequate return. And so what I'd like you lots to think about is whether or not at least 50% of the new housing should not be... Well, I can see that Paul's shaking his head, and I know why. <laughs> but actually, if you really want to do a, a legacy that will remain, then half of the housing that you're going to build on public land that was paid for with public money should be available to the people who live in the area. Thanks. Hi, thanks. Um, I've got another money question. Um, if the government's um, investing 9 to 14 billion plus, um, how much is going to be needed from uh, the private sector as uh, to up to 2019, which if someone would care to put a figure to the nearest billion, um, to make the strategic framework, strategic regeneration framework work? Okay, as, um, as another London cyclist, um, of course I think this is the most pressing question that's been asked of all, but I think it's a wider issue about um, the, the wider benefits to London, not just to the local area, housing, and then another money question. Who is game to respond first? Well, I'll, I'll, I'll say something about housing, and then I'll say something about um, and I'll say two things about it. First of all, I do actually deeply disagree with you that housing is the most important thing. I think actually creating jobs for people so that they can improve their standard of living and make more choices about their housing for themselves is far more important. But I, I, it's on a scale where everything that we're dealing with is critically important anyway. Um, the housing thing um, is, is an issue. And there are different views, even amongst the five boroughs, about the way in which we should protect the public housing we build for the people who live in the area. And there are differences of view about how that should work. Um, and, and at one level, we have to respect the fact that different boroughs take a different view about how they want to manage that process. And of course, if you want to make sure that local houses go to local people, then you have to have a system which is supported by a number of, of housing authorities in an area. But the real problem um, is probably something to do with the point I was making earlier, which is that um, we do need to think much more carefully about the impact of population migration and churn and the burdens that uh, local authorities in East London carry as a result of the way in which population migration works within this conurbation. And it works in a way which means that if you're an outer London borough and you choose not to build any houses and you don't provide any new houses, then you don't have to accommodate anybody, whereas we who are providing houses basically to meet the needs of our own communities find ourselves then having to accommodate a very considerable number of, of, of migrants from other parts of London, <laughs> exacerbated as it happens by the huge amount of placement of very poor, very disadvantaged families 
in very substandard private rented accommodation in East London simply because it's there. Now these are problems and they're not easy to solve and there are deep passions about how you deal with them. But the, the real point is that quite apart from that we want to get the HCA sufficiently well organised that it can start building more houses anyway because that's where it starts from at the moment. We're in a bit of a dearth of new provision anyway. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm sorry I shook my head, but I may, not, I, mean, I may have been shaking the wrong thing. We, we clearly need some houses for social rents, if that's one of the things that you mean. It's not all we need. We know in Canning Town and in vast bits of Poplar, again, one of the reasons for that poverty map is low-density housing in pretty much social rented monoculture. It just doesn't work. That's why we're removing bits of Canning Town and rebuilding it. But we do need to build houses for social rents. We do need to protect those against the likes of Hammersmith and Fulham, in my view, if you read their housing policy, who would like to ship quite a lot of people from West London to come and live in the new houses for social rents in East London. That won't help our housing lists in East London. So part of the work that, as you said, you've been doing is to try and get something in place that will do that. We also need some houses for... Uh, instead, we need to tie that housing to um, aspiration and not only to need. I still have people come to my surgery, you know, not the ones, who proudly announce that they've had another child this year and can I have a council house now? No, actually, we can't do that. What we have to do is to find ways to try to link the right to social housing to employment and aspiration and help people with that too. Um, rather than create the kind of ghettos that we do, I'm afraid, have in Canning Town and bits of proper. Uh, the second thing is, and the other kind of people who come in more droves to my search actually are working people in tiny flats <coughs> in the social rented section, sector who are never going to get the council house because they will never qualify, as, however many we build, but they can't get out, they can't get their foot on the, on the housing ladder, and those people, we have to find a way of getting homes that they can afford. So if you're saying that that's a part of the equation, I agree with that. We have to do that. And then we have to find some homes for the other group of people you were thinking about, who may, you know, get better incomes and so forth. They'd love to stay in the area because they can live in the story we're telling, but have to move out. So actually there's a mixture of homes for different kinds of people at different stages in their life and of economic development. And that's really tough to do, but I don't think it... If I misunderstood you, I thought you were saying let's build some more social housing ghettos. We shouldn't be doing that. I mean, I think we need to be, if you're thinking about social housing, affordable housing, as opposed to housing itself, if we could get to 50%, that would be a real step forward. At the moment, on the estates that I work on in Tower Hamlets, it's 80-85% social housing, and it doesn't work. How many billions are you going to need up to 2019 for the strategic regeneration frameworks? Oh, um, for the things that we're doing, which are mostly about um, working smarter and better in terms of stuff like making sure that there's a, an adequate system in place across sport and healthy living to support some of the objectives we want to achieve in health, not very much. If you're talking about the, the issues around sustaining the investment and growth of the area, 40,000 new homes, um, God knows how many billions of investment in industry, there's an awful lot of infrastructure to go with that. And there's a very simple, very clear multiplier about how, how much you need to spend on schools, public health, hospitals, clinics, roads, street lighting, infrastructure services to support a growing population of that size. I can't remember the numbers, but our estimate at the moment is that to accommodate that extra 
housing growth, the government will need to spend somewhere between four and five billion on, on funding it. Um, but that's a consequence of putting an awful lot of people in a very small area which only has at the moment enough infrastructure to meet the needs of the people who are there just now. And you can't avoid that. That's just a fact of modern life with a growing population in a densely packed city where there's a very strong commitment to building on brown fields. Um, beyond that, who knows? We'd like a decent river crossing. We'd like a decent rail system going north-south across the area. All of those are costs. We shall achieve them in time because it will make sense. But at the moment, we're in a huge difficulty because all of the previous assumptions about the way in which the private sector would buy its planning permissions by 106 contributions is on the floor. We're not getting any money from private developers towards public infrastructure as part of the deal over planning permissions at the moment. So, there we are. It's a lot of money. 45 billion is the starting point. Yeah. Andy. No, I just think on the housing issue, I just think as we're here, I think it, it, it is a real balance. You can't look at the site in isolation. You have to look at it in a larger context of housing policy, both within the city and within the borough. So on one hand, Paul says, you know, live, work, and stay because people are leaving. Well, how do we do that? You've got to be able to provide, again, you know, the opportunity for diversity of housing types. There'll be at different levels of affordability so you can keep that. So I think it's got to be in balance. So you say, you know, 80, 80 85% of housing, you know, uh, social housing of what, you know, Paul's saying, and then 35% on the, you know, uh, on the site, what does that balance out? So in the end, you're achieving a mixed income community. So I'm not debating is 35 right or wrong, but we can't just look at it in isolation. You've got to look at it, what your total policy is, what you want to achieve for all levels of people who, in, in East London and these communities, so they also do have the opportunity to stay. And this is one of those sites that does offer that possibility for real diversity and to, to achieve those goals. I think one should also just look at London in the world context. I mean, we are talking about a global city. Um, if we think of other cities like New York or uh, Tokyo, by far the largest percentage of the workforce commutes in. Uh, I don't know what the average is. You, you may know here, but uh, I doubt that the majority of people uh, work in the borough where they live. Uh, and with a city with the already extraordinary transport infrastructure that it does, if you compare London with any other city except for Tokyo, it is one of the best served cities and there's going to be crossrail soon. One has to also accept that um, there is a degree of movement which is part of the um, changing sort of at the moment, capitalist system uh, with public infrastructure uh, and public investment in the way that we're talking.